Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study. It's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, 1 Kings chapter 1. You know, we have uh, all spent time in school, some days forcing ourselves to stay awake through classes where what we were taught was tedious, seemingly irrelevant information about the past. And our history courses, at least mine were, were usually presented as a dry series of the names of dead people. of the dates of obscure events that we can't identify with and a whole list of place names that we forgot minutes after we were told them. So it's our knee-jerk reaction to study the ancient history of Israel as contained in the Bible with that same expectation. Now, as I told you last time, the book of Kings indeed takes us through an enormous amount of Israel's history. A 450-year period from the time that David handed the throne over to Solomon until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took Judah captive up to Babylon. And as tempting as it will be, to see and to hear what we study in this book in the same way that the post-Enlightenment era Bible scholars often do, that is, as mere secular history told with superstitious religious overtones, we must avoid it. Because rather, we're studying the path of our own redemption history told in the book of Kings is essentially the fulfillment of Nathan's prophetic oracle to David. And this oracle stated that David's would essentially be an everlasting dynasty and that even though many of the kings it would produce would be wicked, God would not abandon David's royal descendants as he did King Saul. The church that has done such a marvelous job of extending the truth of God's grace through Messiah to our entire globe has a tendency to disregard this foundational part of our redemption history with a kind of ambivalent attitude. I hope we can remedy that. The first 11 chapters of the book of First Kings are about King Solomon and his 40-year reign over a united, prosperous, and, and uh, influential kingdom of Israel. Let's read this first chapter that tells us the story of King Solomon's coronation. So we're going to look at First Kings chapter 1, page 366, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. King David grew old, the years took their toll, and he couldn't get warm, even when they covered him with bedclothes. 
His servants said to him, Let us try to find a young virgin for my lord the king. She can wait on the king and be a companion for him, and she can lie next to you so that my lord the king will get some heat. And after looking through all of Israel's territory for a beautiful girl, they found Avishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful and became a companion for the king. She took care of him, but the king did not have sexual relations with her. Adonia, the son of Hagit, was beginning to claim that he would be king. And to this end, he organized chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never in his life confronted him by asking, Why are you behaving this way? And moreover, he was a very handsome man. He was born next after Abishalom. He conferred with Yoab, the son of Zeruiah, and Eviatar the Kohen, and they both supported Adonia. But Zadok the Kohen, Baniah the son of Yehoiada, not Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and David's elite guard were not on Adonia's side. And one day Adonia killed sheep, oxen, fattened calves at the stone of, of uh, Zochelet by Ein Rogel. And he summoned all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all of the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not summon Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the elite guard, or Shlomo, that's Solomon, his brother. Nathan went to Bathsheba, the mother of Shlomo, and said, Haven't you heard that Adonia, the son of Hagit, has become king without the knowledge of David, our Lord? Now come, please, let me give you advice so that you can save both your own life and that of your son Shlomo. Go in to see King David. Say to him, My Lord, King, didn't you swear to your servant... Your son Shlomo will be king after me. He will sit on my throne. So why is Adonia king? Well, right then, while you are still talking with the king, I'll come in after you and confirm what you're saying. Now, Bathsheba went into the king in his room. The king was very old. Abishag the Shunammite was in attendance on the king. And Bathsheba bowed, prostrating herself to the king, and the king asked, What do you want? And she answered him, My lord, you swore by Adonai your God to your servant, your son Solomon will be king after me, he will sit on my throne. But now, here's Adonia ruling as king. And you, my lord the king, don't know anything about it. He killed oxen, fattened calves, sheep in great numbers. He has summoned all the sons of the king, Eviatar the Kohen, Yoav the commander of the army, but he didn't summon Solomon your servant. As for you, my lord the king, all Israel is watching you. They're waiting for you to tell them who is to sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. If you don't, then when my lord the king sleeps with his ancestors, I and my son Shlomo will be considered criminals. Right then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet entered, and they told the king, Nathan the prophet is here. And after coming into the king's presence, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord king, did you say, Adonia is to be king after me, he will sit on my throne, for he has gone down today and killed oxen, fattened calves and sheep in great numbers. He summoned all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Eviatar the Kohen, and right now they're eating and drinking in his presence and proclaiming, Long live King Adonia! But 
he didn't summon me, your servant, or Sadok the Kohen, or Baniah the son of Yehoyada, or your servant Shlomo. Is this authorized by my lord the king without your having told your servant who would sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Well, King David answered by saying, Summon Bathsheba to me. And she entered the king's presence and stood before the king, and then the king swore an oath. As Adonai lives, who has delivered me from all adversity, as I swore to you by Adonai, the God of Israel, your son Solomon will be king after me. He will sit on my throne in my place. So will I do today. Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, prostrating herself to the king, and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Summon Sadok the Kohen, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. They came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord. Have Shlomo my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. There Sadok the Kohen and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Sound the shofar and say, Long live King Shlomo. Then escort him back. He is to come and sit on my throne, for he is to take my place as king. I have anointed, I've appointed him to rule over Israel and Judah. But Neah responded to the king by saying, Amen. May Adonai, the God of my lord the king, confirm it. Just as Adonai has been with my lord the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord King David. So Sadok the Kohen, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Kriti and the Politi went down and Shlomo uh, rode on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Sadok the Kohen took the horn of olive oil out of the tent and anointed Solomon. They sounded the shofar, and all the people shouted, Long live King Shlomo! All the people escorted him back, playing flutes, rejoicing greatly, so that the earth shook with the sound. Adonia and all his guests heard it while they were finishing their meal. But it was Joab who, when he heard the blast on the shofar, asked that noise. What's the meaning of this uproar in the city? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiatar, the priest. And Adonia said, Come in! You're a worthy man. You must be bringing good news. Jonathan answered Adonia, The truth is, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. Moreover, the king sent him with Sadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Crete and the Politi. They let him ride on the king's mule. And Sadok the Kohen and Nathan the prophet anointed him king in Gihon. They is- then they escorted him back from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise you've been hearing. Moreover, Solomon is now sitting on the throne of the kingdom. More than that, the king's servants came and blessed our lord King David with these words. May God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne, after which the king bowed down on, his, on the bed. Finally, the king said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who has given someone to sit on my throne today when my own eyes can see it. At this, all of Adonia's guests grew frightened. They got up, everyone going his own way. Adonia too was afraid. 
because of Solomon. He got up, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Shlomo was told, here, Adonia is terrified of King Shlomo. He's grabbed hold of the horns of the altar and is saying, first let King Solomon swear to me that he will not have his servant executed. And Solomon said, if he will demonstrate that he is a worthy man, not a hair of his uh, not a hair of his head will fall to the earth. But if he is found making trouble, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. He came and prostrated himself before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go on home. There are two things that need to be said as a critical backdrop for understanding this chapter. First is that Adonia, holding himself up as king, did not rise to the level of outright rebellion. Rather, it resulted from a misguided assumption on his part. And second is that without this incident of Adonia unexpectedly holding a feast in honor of his anticipation of becoming king of Israel, David would not have been prodded to belatedly, and after a lot of foot dragging, finally announce a successor, Solomon. Now another helpful point of reference is that unlike most other situations in the Bible whereby we move from one chapter to the next or or we're dealing with a Bible book that originally was one large work and now it's divided into multiple books, we cannot just turn the page from 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel, to 1 Kings 1 and see them as connected in time. That is, what we read in the opening verse of 1 Kings 1 is not a logical continuation of the final words of 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this is because the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are a later addition to the book that acts as a kind of appendix to give us information about David's reign that was seen as important for context. Instead then, sequentially speaking, 1 Kings 1 comes right after the end of 2 Samuel chapter 20. That was the story of a second rebellion against David after the one that had been led by his son Absalom and this one by a fellow named Sheva who was from the northern tribes of Israel. And the story ended with a brief summation of the members of David's inner circle at the time this rebellion was put down. Don't turn there, but it was 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 23 through 26, and it said this, Once again, Joab was commander over the whole army of Israel, while Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was uh, over the Creedi and the Pelidi. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Achilud, was secretary of state. Sheva was recorder. Zadok and Aviatar were high priests. And Ira, the Yairi, was David's priest. And now, after that, in sequence, we have the first words of 1 Kings 1 continue from there with, 
King David grew old, the years took their toll, and he couldn't get warm even when they covered him with bedclothes. So that's the sequence chronologically. So what we find next then is that King David is prematurely old. Okay? Whereas just before Moses died, he was described as being of relatively good health and still with excellent eyesight at the age of 120 years, just before David's death, he's described as old, frail, and in ill health at the age of only 70. Now let's recall that it might be perhaps 450 years between Moses and David. So there's not been some rapid decline in life expectancy since the time of the exodus from Egypt to David's day that would account for that condition. Rather, the rabbis say that it was caused from a lifetime of stress and battle and living in extreme conditions in the desert wilderness, exposure, fatigue. I would add to that list the consequences of the last several years of David's life as he went his own way. He lived like someone who wasn't redeemed and he carried a terrible guilt because of it. And this lifestyle, well, it took away his shalom. And thus it took away his God-given vitality. Now while I wouldn't want to carry that analogy too far, it's not unlike men who have spent the bulk of their lives on drugs or as alcoholics or in and out of prison. Their faces and eyes look sunken and hollow. They're bent over and heavily wrinkled. There is the walking dead at far too early of a, of a stage in their lives. The soul sickness of horrendous sin and guilt will do this to a man and to a woman even to somebody who's been redeemed. After all, it's our spirits that are saved for an eternity, not these bodies. We all know of friends or of prominent men and women in ministry who have walked this sad road. And this is often the result of disobedience, especially later in life. This issue about an inability to get warm when one gets older is hardly unique for David. It's somewhat common in seniors and in the elderly and there are a variety of medical conditions that can cause it. We don't need to get into all that. Thus the solution was seen as finding a young woman to lie next to him to help provide him with needed body heat. Now, most Bibles start out in the first verse by saying, as in our complete Jewish Bible, that the years took their toll, or that David was stricken in years, or perhaps advanced in years. And while those are all reasonable depictions of the situation, those words all miss an important nuance. In Hebrew, those words are bo yomim, 
meaning literally, he came with days. This, of course, is an idiom, but you see it's a positive expression. It explains in a positive way that a person has lived for a long time, and even more it implies having lived a meaningful life. The reality is that one can live for many years but have few days of worthwhile accomplishments in all that time. That, of course, is by no means news. We have several modern parables that express this notion such as, at our death, no one's going to have written on their tombstone, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. We've all heard or personally known wealthy people who look back upon their lives and realize that their daily focus on accumulation of riches and power had brought them precious little peace and that in the end they had stored up nothing but things that will ultimately have no lasting value. A great person looks back on a life full of fruitful days. A wicked person's life consists mostly of wasted and abused days, but he's full of excuses. Time is the currency of life that God gives to every human in varying amounts. We don't all receive the same. So the issue is not how much time we get, it's how we use it. Now, this is expressed in a wonderful way in the New Testament. I'm going to read to you a familiar parable of Yeshua. But I'm going to substitute, as I read it to you, the currency of time for the currency of talents that the parable uses. I'd like you all to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Just going to read verses 14 through 30, but I'm going to substitute a couple of words. And if you follow along with me, I think you'll see where we're headed. This is Yeshua speaking. For it will be like a man about to leave home for a while who has entrusted his possessions to his servants. To one he gave five years, equivalent to a hundred years of wages. To another two years. To another one year. To each according to his ability. And then he left. The one who had received five years immediately went out, invested it, and he earned another five. Similarly, the one given two years earned another two, but the one given one year went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's time. And after a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. And the one who had received five years came forward bringing the other five years and said, Sir, you gave me five years. Here, I've made five more. And his master said to him, 
excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You've been faithful with a small amount of time, so I'll put you in charge of a large amount. Come and join in your master's happiness. Also the one who had received two years came forward and said, Sir, you gave me two years. Here I've made two more. And his master said to him, Excellent! You're a good and trustworthy servant. You've been faithful with a small amount. So I'll put you in charge of a large amount. Come in and join your master's happiness. Now the one who had received just one year came forward and said, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest where you don't plant, you gather where you don't sow. I was afraid, so I went and hid your year in the ground. Here, take what belongs to you. You wicked, lazy servant, said his master, so you knew, did you, that I harvest where I don't plant, that I gather where I don't sow seed? Then you should have deposited my time with the bankers so that when I returned, I would at least have gotten back interest with my capital. Take the year from him. Give it to the one who has ten years. For everyone who has something will be given more, so that he will have more than enough. But from anyone who has nothing, even what he does will be taken from him. As for this worthless servant, throw him out into the dark, where people will wail and grind their teeth." Puts it in a little different light, doesn't it? How we spend this currency of time will have much to do not only with what type of welcome we receive in heaven, but also what our earthly legacy will be and whether ours is a life of true joy are merely a misspent life of regret from having sought hollow personal pleasures. A great person incorporates all of his life experiences with God into his very being. And they leave an indelible mark on him. And he learns from them and he passes them on. Others let the events of their lives slide by, forgotten, without purpose. The words, Bo Yomim, tell us that on balance, David's was a purposeful and meaningful life that would have a positive, lasting effect. Well, in verse 2, we're told that David's servants decided the solution to getting David some comfort by being able to feel warm was to provide him with a young virgin. And that the person they decided upon was a beautiful young lady named Avishag. Now this decision to bring this girl to David was not sexual or erotic in purpose per se. It actually concerned a standard medical practice from that era, and this is confirmed in the writings of Josephus. Briefly, the idea basically follows one that's taught to this very day as an emergency treatment for hypothermia. And it is that a person who has been overly exposed to cold and their core body temperature is dangerously low, and especially if there isn't a nearby place for medical help, 
ought to snuggle closely with someone else to absorb the body heat that other person is generating. Merely putting blankets on doesn't help as much because a blanket's only an insulator. Blankets don't produce heat. But by borrowing on the metabolism of another person, heat is generated and it can be readily absorbed by another. What is being described here is that poor old David is bedridden. Thus, of course, the girl will be lying with him. However, it was thought in that day that vitality and energy could be transferred from a healthy person to another one that's in need of it. Thus, the hope was that the sedentary and infirm David would gain energy from a youthful and vibrant younger person by means of close contact. Now, we can scoff at all this if we want, this I, but this idea of our bodies operating on energy that can be transmitted and transferred is central to modern oriental medicine. Why is it stressed that this is a beautiful woman? Well, first of all, beauty was seen as more than skin deep. Outward beauty was associated with grace and usually seen as a physical manifestation of one's inward condition. Second, it was customary that royalty always received the best. Therefore, the king was surrounded with the best furniture, the best clothing, the best housing, the best chariot, the best food, and the best women. And since beautiful was typically seen as the definition of best when it came to women, and often cases men, which we're soon going to see, it is natural that the woman brought to attend David was very lovely to the eye. But this was no prostitute. She was to be a dedicated caretaker of the king. And when verse 4 explains that David did not have sex with her, it's not really about making sure that, that we don't get the wrong idea about their relationship. Rather, it means <coughs> that this girl was not a new addition to David's harem. Thus, Solomon would not inherit her when his father passed away. Whether concubine or wife, the act of sexual consummation had to occur in order for a woman to take on that legal status. That we are explicitly told that Avishag did not have sex with David meant she was neither a concubine nor a wife. She was a servant, nothing more. I, I note this now because it's going to play a role in a future chapter, so make a little mental note of this. Well, now we meet Adonia, son of Hagit. He was the fourth son born to David. Now, Adonia means my Lord is Yah. My, my Lord is Yehovah. Yah is a shortened name for God. And by birth order... He was fourth in line for the throne. However, the three in front of him were dead. 
Amnon was killed by his half-brother, Avshalom. Avshalom was killed by David's nephew, Joab. Kiliath seems to have died very young, as we're told of his birth, and we never hear of his name again. Therefore, by all custom and tradition, Adonia is but a heartbeat from the throne of Israel. Thus he mimicked what his deceased brother Absalom had done. He rode around Jerusalem in a royal chariot with 50 bodyguards running ahead to clear traffic. This display of pomp and ceremony was supposed to let everyone know that he was the crown prince and would be king pretty soon. Verse 8 gives us an explanation of why Adonia would behave as disrespectfully as he did towards his father. It was that David was an overly indulgent father who never disciplined his sons. This was another negative trait of David that served to result in his sons feeling entitled and arrogant. Now it would come back to haunt David, just as it did with all of his other sons. And we're also told that Adonia was a very handsome man. Actually, the word used is beautiful, as was Absalom. And this is meant in that same sense as it was meant for Abishak. Again, the idea is that outward physical beauty was thought to be reflective of good inner qualities. And of course, when it comes to royalty, humans want our leaders to be first and foremost very attractive all right, and personable. Well, in verse 5, Adonia is recorded as saying, Ani Amalek, I will be king. Now this is important to understand because the idea is that he is announcing an expectation. He is not proclaiming that he is currently the king. And this is coming from his assumption that is next in line by birth. When David dies, he indeed will assume the throne. But then we find out that there was a serious split in David's inner circle in regards to whom each faction backed to be the new king. Joab, who was David's top commander, and Eviatar, one of two current high priests, were for Adonia. However, the other high priest, Sadok, David's chief of the bodyguards, Beniah, as well as the bodyguards themselves, were told, the prophet Nathan, and then these two unknown folks named Shimei and Rei, well, they all supported Solomon for king. Well, verse 9 explains <clears throat> that one day, Adonia threw a major banquet by Ein Rogel, and he invited all of his brothers and all of David's servants who were of the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. In other words, this was a large family gathering. However, he did not invite Nathan, Baniah, any of David's bodyguard forces, or his brother Solomon. What this tells us is he was fully aware that there was an expectation from many that he would be bypassed and that Solomon would become king. 
So this banquet and this riding around on a royal chariot was essentially a political rally to gather support. But those who came to it were also taking great risk. This could easily become a life and death matter. Because if David chose Solomon and not Adonia, it was nearly certain that Solomon would have those who were currently opposed to him and for his brother to be executed. Now let's take just a moment to identify the players. We have Eviatar, one of two high priests. He was descended from the priests whom King Saul had slaughtered at Nob. Eviatar's father was a survivor that David took took in and he rescued him. All right. Now, however, for reasons not recorded, David added Sadok as yet another high priest. Obviously, both of them could not be legitimate high priests. And sure enough, Eviatar was not of the proper high priest line. Rather, he was from the line of Ithamar. He was descended from Eli, Samuel's mentor. But neither was Eli of the God-authorized line of high priests. Joab... Yoav may have been David's nephew and his top general, but David pretty much had no use for him. Joab was a ruthless manipulator who looked out mainly for himself. David had never forgiven him for killing Absalom after David had given Yoav strict orders to go gently with Absalom. Now on the other side of the ledger was Sadok, that other high priest. Sadok was the legitimate high priest because he was of the God-authorized line of Eleazar. Now, whether or not David had brought him on board for that reason is uncertain. David didn't seem to have had, at least in recent years, very much concern for Torah law. Now, Nathan, of course, was the legitimate prophet of God that was David's access to the Lord's oracle. Now, under what circumstance he was assigned, we don't know. He just appears on the scene and is the one who chastises David over the Bathsheba affair. He also pronounces David's curse, or rather God's curse uh, on David for it. But key to our story is, he's also the one who pronounced God's oracle that David's dynasty would be forever and that apparently Solomon was God's choice to succeed David. Now, Benyah was a long-time loyal leader of David's palace guard. He'd been with him for decades. Naturally, he was going to side with whom he perceived as David's choice of successor. Well, the place of this banquet was just outside the fortress walls Um, that protected the city of David located about 300 meters or so down the hill at the southern corner of the city it was a public place and just as importantly it meant that Adonia in no way did this in secret in fact he did it right under the nose of his father 
David was right about up in here. Uh, here we are, up, up here. Just not very far. Nathan hears of this. He runs to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, asks if she's aware of this turn of events. But Nathan, in some ways, and this is important, Nathan misinterprets what he sees. He believes that Adonia has pronounced himself king as of now. And why wouldn't he think so? This banquet is being held at a water source so that he can be immersed. The high priest Ebutar is there to anoint him with holy oil is the primary way in which Israelite kings are coronated. And even though that's not what's happening, Nathan assumes that it is. Or at least he fears that it, it is and he's not taking any chances. Now why is Nathan in the middle of all this ruckus? In fact, he's the driving force to thwart Adonia. He's at the head of the opposition, so to speak. It comes from this fact. Long ago, God ordained that what men consider as the customary line of succession to become king is subservient to Jehovah's choice of king. The Lord has never been a respecter of persons. And since Genesis, we have watched as God shunned the physically firstborn and instead chose another to use for His purpose, even in moving His line of promise forward. Okay? Isaac was chosen instead of his older brother Ishmael. Jacob instead of Esau. Judah instead of Reuben. On and on it goes. And here, even though by all human traditions and genealogy, Adonia ought to become the next king of Israel. But the Lord has instead chosen Solomon. And the way the Lord communicates that choice is through the prophet Nathan. Now, this is not an abstract principle of the Lord being the heavenly king who selects the earthly king by whatever criteria he deems. This is actually a Torah law. It's a God principle that is found directly in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't turn there, I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 17 Verses 14 and 15 says this, When you have entered the land Adonai your God is giving you, have taken possession of it, and you're living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me, like all the other nations around me. In that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, the king you appoint over you, you are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. The one whom Adonai, your God, will choose. And only in the most general sense are we ever given the reasons why the Lord selects and elects as He does. He is sovereign and we don't need to know why. Here, in this instance, it's less a matter of God's criteria and more a matter of whom it is who announces the new king. In reality, 
David had several sons. And thus there were a a number of legitimate choices to succeed him. With Adonia as the most logical by reason of birth order. But as Jehovah's earthly representative, Nathan's announcement of Shlomo as the king is merely the announcement to the Israelites of God's choice. So we need to see that kingly succession by birth order is a human concept. It is not a God concept. Now frankly, I think Shlomo is the least likely of all of them to be king. He's the youngest of David's living sons, so far as we know. The rabbis say he's only 12 years old at this time. But I I think more likely he was probably in his late teens. Not any older than that. And he is a product of a scandalous situation. I mean, I, I don't need to remind you that his mother is the infamous Bathsheba whose illegitimate son she had with David died as an infant, and that Solomon was the next child to be born to Bathsheba. And even though Bathsheba and David were married when Solomon was conceived, neither Bathsheba nor Solomon would have been very welcome in the harem or respected by the Israelite community at large. I mean, this whole seedy thing was tainted with adultery and murder and favoritism. Thus, Nathan uses the power of his personality and of his office to manipulate Bathsheba to go to her husband and inform him of the news that according to Nathan, Adonia has declared himself as king. Again, now, this is not really true. So Nathan carefully orchestrates the situation. He puts words in her mouth. He tells Bathsheba precisely what to say and how to say it. And then after she speaks, he'll just kind of coincidentally drop by the palace. At just the right moment, confirm her words and explain to David that he has to do something immediately or Solomon's going to lose the throne. Now I want you to notice something that happens from verse 5, this elaborate dinner banquet, all the way to the end of the chapter, with Solomon as king and sparing Adonia's life for now. It is that all of this occurs in a matter of hours. That's the urgency. In verse 13, Nathan has Bathsheba remind the feeble David that my Lord King, didn't you swear to your servant your son Solomon will be king after me? He will sit on my throne. So why is Adonia king? A good question for any Bible student to ask about now is now, when exactly did we ever hear of this promise that Solomon was to be made king? And in reality, nowhere in earlier scriptures is this ever plainly stated. This sort of even fuzzy illusion occurs only in 2 Samuel 12. There it says, 
David comforted his wife Bathsheba, came to her and went to bed with her, and she gave birth to a son and named him Shlomo, and Adonai loved him. And he sent through, through Nathan the prophet to have him named Yedidyah, loved by God for Adonai's sake. That's it. So the idea that God gave Solomon a specially divinely ordained name, Yedidyah, is about the only clue we've had before this chapter in 1 Kings that Solomon was to be David's successor. Now we do get a bit more information about this later on in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 verses 7 through 10 because there it says, My son, said David to Shlomo, My heart was set on building a house for the name of Adonai my God, but a message from Adonai came to me, You have shed much blood and fought great wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his enemies that surround him, for his name is to be Shlomo. And during his reign, I will give peace and quiet to Israel. It is he who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Thus we are to understand that the source of this message from Adonai that Solomon would reign had to have been Nathan the prophet because he was God's official messenger to David at this time. I think we'll close here for today and continue with this next time.